people are very different from each other. If you know, you look around the people next to you, they're different than you. We're all unique. They have different body builds, different skin colors, different colors of hair, different levels of intelligence, where we're different in so many different ways. But even though we're all different from one another, there, there are things that all people who are alive have in common. <laughs> all living people breathe, they eat, they sleep, they drink water. And if they're not in a coma, they're aware of the world around them. You know, these these are the things that could be called signs of life. And uh, while, while that's true in the physical realm, that's also true in the spiritual realm. Christians can be very different from each other. They can interpret certain scriptures differently. They might be more expressive Christians or reflective type Christians. Uh, As a result, they might choose to identify with different kinds of churches. But all genuine believers have certain things in common. Just like there are signs of physical life, there are signs of spiritual life. You know, there's there's a... That's the major point that John has been making in this letter that we've been going through. We're we're concluding our study this morning on the book of 1 John. And all throughout this book, John has been talking about signs of life. Things that characterize true Christians. Last week, uh, in the verses that Chris was preaching on, one of the verses gave the purpose for this whole letter. John said at the end here in chapter 5, verse 13, I've written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. This is the reason I wrote. I want you to know that you have eternal life. Actually, uh, I'm kind of sorry to say the book of 1 John is not a feel-good book. It's a book about honest self-examination. And John John wanted his readers to know whether they had had a genuine conversion experience or not. And so in this letter, he talks about signs of life. And some of these signs that we've looked at in this letter, it started out talking about fellowship with God. We have this communion with God. The Holy Spirit is producing that in us. And then we went through the three areas that we repeated over and over again in this book because John repeated them over and over again. A desire to please God, to be obedient to Him. That's something if we're true believers, true followers of Christ, we want to be obedient to Him. Love for fellow believers. God gives us a love for the people He loves. (laughs) He gives us a love for each other. We all have Christ in us. We want to love each other. And then right beliefs about Jesus. We have to have the correct beliefs about Jesus. And so today, we're going to look at John's closing comments in this epistle. And as we look at these last few verses, uh, we want to begin by asking ourselves, how are these verses related to the context of the rest of the book? And well, in, in this passage, John's going to make three declarations about what we as believers know to be true. These three assertions are all introduced with the words, we know. We know is repeated three times in this passage. And they kind of sum up where we've been in this book. 
Follow with me as I read the passage. John begins, We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one can't harm him. That's the first we know statement. Secondly, he says, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And thirdly, he says, We know that the Son of God has come and has given understanding so that we may know who is true, and we are in him who is true, even his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Now, we're going to go through each of those three um, we know statements. And, and, And the first of them is telling us that we have, as believers, genuine believers, we have victory over sin. He says this, We know that anyone who is born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. This topic has been repeated several times in this letter. We've gone over these, this material over and over again. The first verse here says that we won't continue to live in sin. I've mentioned before that when this is said, it's often using the present tense of the verb to sin. And by doing so, he's saying, talking about sin as an ongoing process, a lifestyle. In other words, Christians won't continue to live in a sin. The implication of John's teaching here is that we can know a lot about a person by their lifestyle. You know, if from morning to evening, day in, day out, They live as though God does not exist, as though his instructions for their life mean nothing. If they're comfortable living in stubborn, unrepentant sin, (laughs) then that person doesn't show evidence of being a genuine believer, no matter what they profess. You know, yes, it's true, Christians sin. We've talked about that. Even in this book, he says, if you say you're without sin, you're a liar, (laughs) Christians sin, but what separates Christians from non-Christians is that Christians are are not at peace with their sin. They're not comfortable in their sins. Earlier in this series, we described the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian's approach to sin being that a Christian will not be content while they're living in sin. Stephen Cole explained it this way. He said, new birth has an obvious result, namely a desire for a righteous life. He continues, while true believers fall into sin, they can't live indefinitely in it. The change of nature results in a change of behavior. He used that illustration we used earlier in this series, that if a pig falls in a mud hole, he wallows in it and doesn't try to get out because that's his nature. He loves the mud. That's where he wants to be. (laughs) But if a sheep falls into a mud hole, it wants to get out, get cleaned up, and avoid falling in that hole in the future because it has a different nature. And he suggests that that's how it is with the true child of God. They're not comfortable there. So the critical question for us is what do our life choices say about us? Verse 18 says that anyone who's born of God does not continue in sin. So the million dollar question is, have we been truly born of God? And is our new birth evident through our lifestyles and choices? Dr. Stephen Larson, uh, he's one of the teachers for Legionnaire Ministries, Dr. Sproul's ministry. 
He wrote a book called Absolute Assurance. And in that book, he, he shares this, and it's a little bit long, but let me share it with you anyway. He says, upon graduating from seminary, my first ministry assignment was working in a church with college students and young married couples. It was during that time I made a startling discovery that has influenced me to this day. He says, to my amazement, many of the church members I served had lived many years under a false assurance of salvation. He says, this sobering realization first hit me when I hosted an out-of-town weekend retreat for a group of young married couples, some 40 Husbands and wives traveled with me to the beautiful Ozark Mountains, an ideal place for reflection and solitude. He says, that Friday night, as we gathered together in a large meeting room, our first session, I asked everyone to share how they came to know Jesus Christ, and I was totally unprepared for what I heard. He said, over half the group that evening gave essentially the same testimony, Again and again, they shared that years earlier they had gone to church, walked an aisle, talked to a counselor, prayed a prayer, been baptized, and presented to the church as a new Christian. He says, but by their own sad admission, their life never changed. Despite this initial step toward Christ, they continued to live indifferently toward God, to run with the world, to pursue sin with increasing pleasure. He says, by their own testimonies, their lives didn't change because they had not been born again. They had merely gone through an outward, the outward motions of religious activity without experiencing the inward reality of regeneration. He says, not until some years later did they come to the sobering awareness. Only then did they realize that they were lost. And only then were they truly born again. He says, I was shocked. The majority of this group had grown up in Bible-believing churches, but they had lived their lives for many years under the deadly delusion that they were in God's kingdom. Although they had received the well-meaning assurance from a counselor or a pastor or a parent, they had never received that assurance from the Holy Spirit. Just think about it. Over half the people that weekend said they had been religious, but lost. He says, I find that frightening. Even more alarming is the likelihood that this experience is a microcosm of the church as a whole today. Vast multitudes in the church saying, I believe, I profess to know Christ, but their lives deny it. After two decades of pastoring and preaching around the country, he says, it's been my conviction that many professing Christians live under a false assurance of salvation. Though they attend church and are outwardly religious, many of them devoutly so, they nevertheless remain lost. He says, I pastored another church for 14 years, and I can say that most of those converted during that time were members of the church, fine, upstanding, seemingly moral people. They were Sunday school teachers, deacons, wives, choir members, and like, people who had spent the majority of their life under the delusion that they were Christians when they were not. He says, lest there be any misunderstanding, if there is no confession of sin... Our confession of Christ, our obedience, our love, our righteousness, that means there's no conversion, no salvation, no heaven. He says the practice of their lives betrays the confession of their lips. Although they claim a relationship with Christ, it's non-existent. He says tragically, the longer they go to the church and are exposed to the truth without being converted, the harder their hearts become, 
Rather than softening their hearts to the work of the Holy Spirit, they resist him and they become callous, often unconsciously. He says, here's how it works. A person goes to a doctor to get a tuberculosis shot so as not to contract the dreaded disease. The dreaded disease. The doctor, to prevent the patient from contracting the illness, actually injects him with a small dose of the virus itself. And strangely enough, a small dose of TB prevents one from contracting, contracting the full-blown disease. The shot serves to build up the patient's immunity. The lesser prevents the greater, keeping one from acquiring the real thing. He says, this is precisely what happens with so many people spiritually. They receive a small dose of religion, but it only inoculates them, preventing them from ever receiving the one true reality, Jesus Christ. They come to church, they read their Bible, they pray, they even shed a tear, but they're not born again. Through increased exposure to Christ, their resistance to the convicting work of the Spirit is built up, thus hardening their hearts and keeping them from entering into a personal relationship with Jesus Untold multitudes of people within the church today are just like this. They've been inoculated with the gospel, but never contracted the real thing. They have walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, signed a card, made a decision, been baptized. They have joined a church, attended Sunday school, sung in the the choir, given their money. They've even served in church leadership. But despite all this, they haven't yet been converted to Christ. They have facts about Christ but not faith in him. They have believed with their heads, but not with their hearts. They have come to church, but not to Christ. They profess Christ, but do not possess him. They have turned over a new leaf, but not received a new life. They have been reformed, but not reborn. They wear a cross, but they don't bear one. They know the word of God, but not the God of the word. They give their money to God, but not their life. They have a practical religion, but not a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So many talk about reaching the unchurched, and rightfully so, but our mission field starts in the church. Truth be known, the unconverted church member is the hardest person to reach with the gospel. Assuming he or she is saved, they turn a deaf ear to the gospel, never applying it to their own life. Now that's quite quite a statement, isn't it? You know, somebody who was deeply invested in the church long before I experienced the reality of Christ, I don't want anyone to fall short of a true salvation. You know, as a young person, I grew up in a pastor's family. I was kind of socialized into Christianity before I truly encountered Christ in a life-changing way. I practiced uh, the Christian religion long before I I experienced new birth. And so now as a pastor, I want to call people to a genuine conversion experience. I don't know if this is just for one or two people here today, but if there's someone here today who, who has stopped short of really discovering Christ, you know, open your hearts up to him. Actually, it seems to me that there's two common errors that people make in relationship to their salvation. Either uh, they have confidence in spite of the fact that there's no real change in their lives. (laughs) They haven't started to really love God. They seldom do any self-examination. 
They make sin a habitual practice, and yet they hold on to a profession of faith they once made. That's one error. And on the other hand, there's, there are those who are in constant anxiety about their spiritual state. They beat themselves up with self-accusations. They're morbidly obsessed with their failures. They always see reasons to doubt their salvation. And they don't want to sin, but they do, and so they doubt their salvation. Now, now that second one's a kind of confusing one because I don't believe that necessarily means a person's not a Christian, that they haven't been converted. I believe that might be evidence that they really have. <laughs> you see, Satan's an accuser, and he accuses us of believers, and he wants us to doubt our salvation. I, I really like the way Chris shared it last week. He shared John Piper's statements about, you know, uh, to people who doubt their salvation, and he said something like this. I'm going to butcher it, okay, Chris? But he says, if they're bothered by their sin, or at least want to be bothered by their sin, or even wish that they wish that they were bothered by their sin, that shows that God's Spirit's at work in them. Now, that was a rough paraphrase. But sorrow over sin may be one of the signs of life. And the weight of sin in our life can be an evidence that the Spirit is bearing down on us. <laughs> you know, it's been said that if you put a 400-pound weight on a corpse, it's not going to feel it. He or she's dead. He's not going to feel the weight of sin. But if you put a weight like that on a living person, they feel that weight every moment they carry it. The weight of sin can be an evidence of life. It was for David. He cried out after his sin with Bathsheba, and when he finally confessed it, he says, When I kept silence, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped in the heat of summer. In other words, there's no peace for a Christian living in sin. And when somebody tells me what a failure they are because they repeatedly sin, I like to say it sounds like the Spirit of God's at work in you. <laughs> That's a good sign. Feeling bad about our sin isn't evidence that we are unsaved. It's apathy toward our sin. It's unwillingness to even give up our sin that should concern us and make us look into our lives and see what's going on. All through this book, John tells us that God, as God's children, we can't stay in sin. Settle down in our sin. Get comfortable in our sin. Rather, with God's help, we should seek victory from it because we're going to want out of it. True Christians can't live with an unbroken pattern of sin. They can't carry a 400-pound weight on their shoulders everywhere they go. They don't want to carry it because they love God and they know God hates sin. If you love your sin more than you love God, something's wrong with your profession of faith. Therefore, nothing in our lives should be an obstacle. We should, not, we should be willing to give up anything that we think is unpleasing to God because we love God and want to follow him. There's nothing we should hold on to at the expense of knowing God. You know, why should we as Christians have assurance of victory over sin? He gives two reasons in this first part. First, he says, because we're born of God, we know that anyone who's born of God doesn't continue in sin. It's people who are born of God who can't continue in sin. We can't continue to sin in sin if we have the life of Christ in us. 
He said the same thing earlier. We talked about this already back in 1 John 3.9. He says, those who have been born of God's family don't make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. That's what new birth means. It means we now have the life of Christ in us, and it's incompatible (laughs) with sinful choices. Now, some people think that being born again is just for people who have special emotional needs, (laughs) for weak people. And Timothy Keller explains that that's not accurate. He, he looks at Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, John chapter 3. He says there was this great religious leader, Nicodemus, a leader of the Pharisees, an instructor of the law. He's one of the teachers, professors, a civic leader, a wealthy, accomplished man. And he comes to Jesus and says, hey, you know, I, I, I want you to teach me. You're this remarkable person. I've been watching you. I'm impressed. I want to learn from you. I want to get to know you. And Jesus' response is he goes right to the juggler. Okay, he, he doesn't hesitate at all. He goes, boom. He says, you must be born again. <laughs> He's very abrupt. It, it, it tells us a tremendous amount about what we need. Nicodemus is hardly just an emotional person. He's not someone being led around by his emotions. He's highly educated. He's a teacher in Israel. He's successful. He's wealthy. Now, people who think that new birth is just for people who need an emotional encounter, that's for people who haven't made life work and they just need a crutch, they don't understand the conversion of Nicodemus. They don't understand this conversation Nicodemus has with Jesus. Here's Nicodemus, completely pulled together, a very educated person, cognitive. He's not just emotional, uneducated, or illogical. He's a person whose life is not falling apart. And still Jesus says to him, you must be born again. All those things aren't enough. Other people think that becoming a Christian is about becoming more religious. Nicodemus, though, was not just an educated, successful, logical person. He was also very religious. And yet Jesus still says to him, that's not enough, you must be born again. (laughs) Keller says that knocks out the popular idea that what it means to be born again is that you get really religious. You start going to church, you start praying, you start reading the Bible more. Isn't that what you think it means to become a Christian? (laughs) But here's a man whose life is already filled with those things. It's filled with religious structure. It's filled with moral structure. It's filled with reading the Bible. And yet Jesus looks at him and says, you're still lacking one thing. (laughs) You have to be born again. That proves that whatever new birth is, it can't mean get really moral, get really religious, and read your Bible. Being born again means something else. Whatever it means, it it doesn't mean it's just for weak emotional people. Whatever it is, it can't just be for people who need more religion in their lives. And Keller concludes what I'm saying here by saying this. When Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again, he's saying, if you want to have a relationship with me at all, it has to come through something God does in you called new birth. 
Why is it that young people who grow up in the church pull away from it as soon as they leave home? Could it be that they were practicing religion without discovering Jesus? How could someone who has been very involved in a church for a number of years leave it for some self-centered interest? Could it be that they were religious without having a true born-again experience? Both sinners and religious people need to be born again. (laughs) Actually, John gives two major interviews in the beginning of his gospel, uh, one with Nicodemus and one with a woman at a well in Samaria. And, And if you think about it, these two people are just exactly opposites in many ways. Keller explains it this way. He says, one is a man, the other is a woman. (laughs) One is successful, one is unsuccessful. One religious and moral, the other very irreligious and very immoral. One put together, the other a broken life. And yet, to to Nicodemus, the religious man, Jesus said, you must be born again. Now, the woman needed to be born again too, but maybe he had to emphasize it with Nicodemus because the woman already understood her life was a failure. She hasn't been inoculated against it yet through her religious practices. It needs to be spelled out more clearly for the religious person. (laughs) The person who thinks they've already kind of arrived. So many people are, are proud that they're not guilty of the sins of others, but Jesus says no matter who you are, how moral you are, how good you're trying to be, or what the condition of your life is, you still have to have new birth. If you go to church, and your church never tells you about the need for new birth, if you you go to a church that tries to just educate you into Christianity without having a true conversion experience, then as Keller puts it, you're getting past counterfeit money. Being born again means more than just accepting Jesus as a fact of history, a teacher, or an example. It means more than giving mental assent to the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. It means that one turns from their sins and and, and with his or whole heart, heart puts their trust in Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. The Bible tells us to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And again in 2 Corinthians it says, anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Being born again means becoming a new person because we have the life of Christ in us. The second reason, we're on the second reason on the first point yet, okay? But the second reason we should have victory over sin is because Jesus will keep us safe from the evil one. When when he is in us, he is also keeping us. You see this here when he says in verse 18, we know the one who is born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. That's another way of saying Christ is with you, and he's helping you resist the enemy who wants to destroy you. Now, it's most probable here that John is not talking about guarding ourselves. The King James interprets it that way. It's much more likely that he's talking about Jesus. Jesus is the one who is born of God that keeps us. 
Most of the other translations have interpreted it that way, and it really has to do with which manuscripts they went back to, whether the word him or himself was used. But I, I believe it's Jesus who has the keeping power here and helps us overcome sin. John MacArthur explains it this way. He says, a sinner, a believer can never fall back into the pattern of unbroken sin because he who is born of God or Jesus keeps him. As a good shepherd, Jesus protects his flocks so that the evil one, Satan, does not so much as touch or lay hold or fasten his grip on them. They are not under his control, having been rescued from the domain of darkness. He says Satan can influence us. He can tempt us. He can harass the saints as he did Job and Peter, but he can't reclaim us. (laughs) Jesus will not fail to keep the redeemed who have been given to him by the Father. Christ is the anchor in the soul for the believers. Now that is such a comfort to me to know that it is Christ who's protecting me from the evil one, that I'm not just fighting him in my own strength. Christ keeps us safe, and the evil one can't destroy us. One of, my, one of the verses I love deep, deeply is 2 Timothy 1.12. I go back to it often. It says, Paul says, I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. The Nelson Study Bible footnote says this, the phrase, whom I have believed, expresses Paul's unshakable faith in his Savior. The phrase, what I have committed to him, does not refer to something that Paul does for Christ. I've committed this to him. I've shown my evidence through my hard work and earning it. But something he has entrusted to him, like a deposit in a bank. I've committed it to him. I've placed it in the deposit box for him to keep. That's my life. (laughs) This speaks not of Paul's confidence in himself, but Christ's trustworthiness. Paul was confident that Christ would keep his deposit, his life, and the eternal rewards of his ministry. I love the thought that Christ is keeping me. I know, you know, left to myself, I'm in a bad place. (laughs) It's probably not going to end well for me. But as Paul said to the Philippian believers in another location, he says, I am certain that God who began a good work in you will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Jesus returns. Now, the last two points we're going to go through rather quickly because I took so much time on the first one. But the second we know statement is that we know that we belong to God. He says in 19, we know that we are the children of God. We know who we are. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We're in God's house and the world's over here. You know, this statement emphasizes our position of members of God's family. According to it, there are two spiritual families, Christ or Satan. And throughout the letter, John has drawn uh, repeatedly a sharp line of distinction between believers and the world. There's several places. I've got several references written here. John doesn't have a middle category of true believers with one foot in the world. (laughs) Either you're of God and are separating from this world, or you're of the world and you lie in the arms of the evil one. Now, now Satan is evil. And he's evil in a very deceptive sort of way. His objective in everything he does is to draw us away from Christ. 
He uses all kinds of means to accomplish that. He tries to get us to love the world at, expense, at the expense of Christ. He wants us to live for worldly desires. But we belong to God now, and we know that to live for the world is to give our lives to something that's going to perish. Only what God has done is going to last forever. Only what's done for God, I should say, is going to last forever. The God of this world blinds people's minds. You know, people in the world can have a good day. They can wear a Life is Good t-shirt. They can enjoy a walk in the woods and at the same time be resting peacefully in the arms of one who's working to keep them away from God. In contrast to the world, believers are of God. They they belong to and serve a new master. Their lives are God-centered, God-focused. Actually, what John's talking about here is a new identity. He's saying when you become a Christian, your identity changes. You're no longer defined by things like your culture, your biological family, or your job, or your performance. These things aren't foundational to your identity anymore. What makes you who you are now is you're part of God's family. Your identity is rooted in your relationship with God, who's now your father, who's committed to you, and who loves you, and Jesus Christ, who's keeping you. And because of this, there should be a fundamental difference in your priorities and goals from those of your non-Christian neighbors. It's not that what they do is bad. It's just that they are kept from God. And so the question we ask ourselves, are we living for God and his glory and his kingdom, or do we just attend church services a little more often than the rest of the population? First, we know that we have power over sin because Christ is in us. Secondly, we know that we have a new identity for we are in Christ. And thirdly, we know that Jesus is God. Verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ, And he is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is God and he is also eternal life. John ends this letter by saying that one of Jesus' purposes in coming is to give us a true knowledge of God. And this line sums up much of what he's been talking about all throughout this letter. Our union with God and our hope of eternal life come through Jesus Christ. And Jesus is accurately revealing God to us in his plan of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. Anything else we might be tempted to rely on for salvation is an idol. (laughs) It might be a different Jesus like the Gnostics we've been talking about in this series. It might be a Jesus other than the God-man. It may be a different gospel than the gospel of the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus. It may be a different means to salvation than by grace alone through faith in Jesus alone. But anything we come up with that replaces the true God and his means to eternal life is an idol. And therefore, John leaves his readers with this final warning. He says, and this is really odd because at the end here, he hasn't talked about idolatry anywhere in this letter. And all of a sudden, just boom, he just drops it in the last verse. He says, dear children, keep yourself from idols. You know, where did that come from? It just wasn't even talked about in this letter. But in a sense, it was. It was because anything that's distracting us from Christ is an idol. And so Charles Swindoll warns that any object of devotion that distracts us from Christ is an idol. Any sin that separates us from reconciliation and intimacy with Christ is an idol. 
Any good work we perform to try to gain his favor, which is received only by grace through faith, is an idol. Any person we adore more than him is an idol. Any truth we claim to prefer to God's inspired word is an idol. And Swindle concludes, to have assurance of our salvation, Christ and Christ alone should be the object of our priorities, our passions, and our pursuits. All other things must take second place to intimacy, obedience, and loving communion with him. Such fellowship with the Father through the Son, by the Spirit, will result in a confident life. That's the book of 1 John. That's where we've been for the last few months. And what I want to leave you with this morning is a question. What are you trusting in for assurance of your salvation? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, close this sermon, but also close this book, the book of 1 John, we pray, Lord, that we won't leave it quickly without reflecting seriously on the content of it, Again, I know there are people here on both sides of the issue, some having confidence they shouldn't have and some not having confidence that they should have. (laughs) And Lord, we just pray that for those who have confidence they shouldn't have, that they would allow this book of of the Bible to speak powerfully to them. I know it's a confrontive book. It's a a difficult book, book in many ways. But they would allow it to to confront them so that they run to the Savior and jump into his arms. And to those who are constantly doubting salvation because of their failures, may they rest in the finished work of Christ for them. May they understand the sins that they think are disqualifying them or the, the fact that they are so bothered by them as an indication that Christ is calling them to himself that, he, that they're in Christ and the Spirit is putting pressure on them. Lord, for both kinds of people, we pray that they would discover Christ in a powerful way. In Jesus' name, amen.